is uh, Mark 14, 26 through 31, and Luke 22, 35 through 38. Jesus had completed the bread and wine ritual of the new covenant with his disciples. They were now about to leave the upper room. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you into Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same thing. And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag, or knapsack, or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. And he said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. Let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you, this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. second reading is from John 15, verses 1 through 11. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm a little sad. Miss Phil and Roman, they're always in the front row. And Bill and I connect. I look to him for encouragement sometimes when I'm speaking because both Bill and I, even though having been Christians for a long time, are learning that we don't have to earn God's love for us. Now it's a really hard lesson when you've been brainwashed 
right, your religious background to believe we have to earn God's love. Uh, if you're not a good boy, God doesn't love you. Uh, if you don't brush your teeth, Jesus is angry. Um, and and uh, James, that's exactly what I'm trying to grow away from. Uh, and and Roma um, is adorable. Uh, and I want to be careful when I say that because I don't want to slight the fact she's also very deep. And when God stirs her heart for someone, she's passionate about that individual. You know she's going to pray. So I miss them this morning, and uh, thank you, Jim, for that prayer for them. We all agree with you. I'm a little bit sad about Cindy also saying goodbye to us uh, and moving up to Oregon. Good grief. What do they have up there anyway? Besides all, all that green and... You know, beautiful spaces and fresh air and uh, no sales tax. <laughs> well, how do you? Thank you. All right. Did you know that the Gospel of Mark does not have a proper ending? Women come to Jesus' tomb on, on the morning of his resurrection. The tomb is empty, but an angel is there and tells them, Jesus is not here, he's risen. Now go and tell his disciples that he's risen, and he'll meet up with them in Galilee, like he said. Mark tells us, but they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The end. Oh. Are you kidding me? Now, there, were, there were, have been scribes since the time that Mark's gospel was complete who were so disturbed by this ending that they added endings. And there are at least three known endings to Mark's gospel, none of them that date as early as the gospel. Uh, one in particular, in fact, uh, the one that we, we have in most of our Bibles, uh, puts in a lot of things that we know from other gospels, like the two disciples on the road to Emmaus from the Gospel of Luke, uh, like uh, Mary Magdalene being one of the women who came to the tomb, uh, However, it's odd that Mark would leave his story hanging in this way because his gospel is really a masterpiece in the way that he used the literary tools of his time to put the story together. In fact, he does it so well that both Matthew and Luke use Mark as an outline for the Gospels that they wrote. In fact, they even use many of Mark's stories, some of them almost verbatim, to tell their story of Jesus. Uh, the similarities that we find between the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are mostly because Matthew and Luke borrow so much from Mark. So how could someone who's such a great storyteller leave 
such a, a, a ragged edge to the end of his story. Perhaps the abrupt ending is evidence of his genius. Because the story of Jesus does not really end with his resurrection or even his ascension into heaven. It goes on, and it will go on forever and ever. In fact, in this way, it's similar to the way John ends his gospel. He says, Jesus has done so many other things that the world isn't big enough to contain all the books that could be written about him. And think about all the books that could be written about Jesus from John's day to our day. The story continues to go on. And it's almost as if we were to ask Mark, well, how does the story end? He might look at us and say, well, your life writes the next chapter. How does that end? How does that go? There's no end to this story, in effect. But there's another possibility, and it's a little bit subtle. It's possible that John did write the end of the story, but he didn't place it at the end. He placed it earlier. In, in chapter 12, John tells um, about Jesus being in the temple. He's been asked, where do you get your authority to, to clean out all the money changers? And Jesus uh, doesn't tell them. But what he does is he tells a parable about a man who owns a vineyard. And we've, we've been through this uh, a few weeks ago. A man who owns a vineyard, he leaves it in the care of tenants. They work the vineyard for him. But when he goes to collect rent on the vineyard or the produce of the vineyard, they mistreat his servants and send them away empty-handed. And they continue to do this. They even abuse the servants. Finally, he says, well, I know what I'll do. I'll send my son. They'll respect him. But when they see the son, they say to themselves, look, if we kill him, the vineyard is ours. And after Jesus tells a story, the scribes and the Pharisees, or, pardon me, the, the priests and the scribes realize it. He's talking about them. These are people who have taken over control of the temple in the name of God. <coughs> They're going to run the temple as they think it should be run. And they've taken over the temple. And God's prophets who have spoken about the things that they're doing, they've ignored. So God sends his son to the temple, to his vineyard, the temple. Um, the, the religious system that ran the temple at that time. Okay, so what do they do to God's son? They kill him and throw him out of the temple, out of the vineyard, out of the city. And the way Jesus um, closes this story, um, he says, okay, so now they've killed the owner's son. What will the owner do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give their vineyard to others. The end of this parable is the end of Mark's gospel. They kill Jesus. He rises again. What can we expect to happen? God's going to take from those who run the temple and give it to others. And Matthew and Luke also in include this parable because it's a defining parable. It defines Jesus' life 
and ministry, specifically in relationship to God and the temple's religious system. You can see how God feels about the religious system and how they treat God's Son. Of course, John was familiar with this parable. He was there, and then he also knows that his readers are familiar with at least one of the Synoptic Gospels. They've heard Matthew's Gospel or Luke's or Mark's. And so it's possible, well, let me put it this way, is it possible because I'm not, I'm not dogmatic on this, but is it possible that John is offering another story of the vineyard? He's not telling exactly the same story. Um, you know, there are, there are similarities, but the, the differences are, are too great. He, he's not even talking to the same audience. Jesus was talking to the, the priests and the scribes in the temple. And this story that John tells Jesus is talking to his disciples. It's, it's more intimate in that way. He's offering another analogy, not a parable. The word parable does not occur in the Gospel of John. There's something similar that also makes analogies. <clears throat> and like the vineyard defines Jesus' life and ministry in the Synoptic Gospels, the vineyard here defines Jesus' life and ministry, only not in relationship to the religious system, but in relationship to God and his disciples, his own new community, the, the new Israel, we could say, or as N.T. Wright does say. <clears throat> the vineyard that was taken from the priests and scribes and elders was given to others. Right? The vineyard was given to others. Well, now we see Jesus talking to the others to whom the vineyard is being given. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, so he's, he's talking to the tenants in the first parable, but in this analogy, he's talking to the disciples. The vineyard is now yours. You, you now make up God's new people. This is the ideal vineyard. This is the true vine. I am the true vine. You are the branches. My father is the vine dresser who tends to his vine. And here, it's not people in charge, it's God in charge. Israel's political system, if we can speak of it as such, started out as a theocracy. And it was... Um, Josephus, who probably coined that term, uh, theocracy. Uh, a monarchy, a king reigns, an oligarchy, a, a group of people reign, a tyranny, a dictator reigns. Uh, theocracy, theo reigns. Theo, theo is God. I have a friend who used to say, um, I'm fine with a theocracy as long as I can be theo. <laughs> but you can and you're not. But... Um, but the idea was God ruled his people. And when the people said, we want a king to rule over us like the other nations, Samuel, the prophet, was really upset. And he went to God and said, oh, God, they're asking for a king now. And, and God says, Samuel, relax. They're just doing to you what they've always done to me. They're rejecting us. 
Give them what they want. But tell them what it's going to be like to have a king. But give them what they want. Well, what, what do we have in a king? We have a human person ruling a nation instead of the direct rule of God. It's hard to get the direct rule of God because he, he moves through people. I mean, there's Moses. Um, I'm glad Moses wasn't the spokesperson for God for all time. You know, he, he did his job in his time. I'd not want to live in a kingdom where Moses was king or where he was the one that God used constantly. Uh, I feel so much more freedom and hope that, that Jesus is king. But the idea here is that people had taken over the, the temple. Oh, good grief. Is there a church in the world where God directly leads, guides, everything is exactly his vision and his will? I don't, I mean, maybe there is. I think it's wonderful if there is. I, mean, I know better to, than to think that that's how it works here. Um, <laughs> that's because uh, this is in the church. It's not a church. And, and there's no leadership. We're all just kind of this is this is what you call disorganized religion. Um, this is one way of reading what John has to say about the true vine. Now, in, in John chapters 15 and 16, and I, I really wanted to rush through chapters 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19, so next week for the resurrection, we'd be right at the perfect spot. <laughs> but it's just impossible. So next week, I'm going to skip those other chapters and just go right to the end, and then maybe come back and pick up the chapters we skip. Because the end it, um, so perfectly suits Easter. But chapters 15 and 16, we have Jesus' last teaching while he's on earth. And it's, it's in private. It's for the, the disciples only. And here we find some of Jesus' most profound sayings. Sayings that we will be meditating on for the rest of our lives. You hear some of these statements. And some of them, I think that they, they don't even make their way to our, our rational minds. Or if they make their way there, the rational mind goes, hmm. I, I think they hit us viscerally first, that we feel them. You'll see. Jesus and his disciples are somewhere between the upper room, which they left at the end of chapter 14, somewhere between the upper room and Mount Olives. And perhaps as they're passing by the temple, Jesus pauses and says, I'm the true vine. And you are the branches. My father is the vine dresser. I mean, here, here the temple, which you know, he's already told this other parable uh, earlier that week. He's already told this other parable about how it's, you know, seen its last days. God's going to take that vineyard and give it to others. And the image that he uses about the, the vine is drawn from Israel's past. Uh, it's used sometimes in the Psalms. You find it in the prophets, Isaiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel. Uh, Isaiah in particular, Isaiah says, I'm going to sing a song to my beloved. My beloved had a vineyard in a very fertile hill. And he talks about how God works his vineyard, how he he 
digs it, he, the soil, he removes all the rocks, he builds a hedge around it, he plants a good vine, he waters it, he cares for it, and then he goes to inspect its fruit and he's disappointed. The, the grapes that are growing on his vine are worthless. So God says, who's at fault here? I've done everything that I'm supposed to do to make this good. And, and Isaiah says, and God is speaking to his people, Israel. And the bottom line is, what God looked from, for in his nation, Israel, was justice and righteousness. And what he saw was bloodshed and a cry of oppression. This is not good fruit. It's not the fruit God wanted. In Jesus' story, the branches are not Israel, but the disciples. And the fruit that God is looking for is love. He's looking to see his disciples loving God, loving Jesus, loving one another. And of course, love is the root of true justice and righteousness. This last week, I had lunch with a Superior Court judge, uh, a very spiritually deep man, uh, a wonderful person. In fact, he's going to speak here sometime in May, uh, May 12, I think. You're going to enjoy him because uh, he helps us connect with God in a very embodied way. Um, some people here, I know uh, Nancy, for instance, has taken courses from him uh, in the uh, exercises of St. Ignatius. But to talk to him and to hear, he says, you know, in the judicial system today, everything is rushed. You're supposed to get through each case as quickly as possible and move on to the next. And he says, one, one thing in my career that I, I am really pleased with how I handled it is a situation in which I was not in a position to make a ruling that was being asked of me, and the expedient thing to do would have been to say, this court cannot handle that issue, you know, the law pro prohibits it, so I'm throwing it out, you'll have to take it elsewhere. Elsewhere, it's pretty serious for the man who's trying to make this suit. He says, but, Instead of doing the expedient thing as I was supposed to do, instead of doing the legal thing I was supposed to do, I said, let's get the other party on the phone. And he said, in 45 minutes, with lots of tears from both parties, the situation was resolved to the satisfaction of both. And what he described to me was a really beautiful scene, the way it all worked out. So that's what love does. Now, when you can't even get justice, you know love is missing. And Jesus wants from his disciples love. So, Jesus says something in this story that not even Isaiah hints at. 
And I don't think we find really this clearly in the other Gospels. That the success of the vine and the branches, or the success of the branches in producing good fruit, depends on an organic, dynamic connection with Jesus himself. Not the mechanical performance of a duty or a legal agreement of commitment, but life flowing into life. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide, abide in me. I was in elementary school, it was summer camp, my dad was the director, he was speaking this morning, and he got up uh, in front of the camp in a very serious demeanor. He said, last night, a murder was committed in this camp. And we were all like, <gasps> a murder is loose. And he confessed he was the murderer. And he produced the small twig. He said, I broke this off of a plant inside the campgrounds, and now it's going to die. Why? Because it was separated from its source of life. It was separated from the, the branch or the top. It has no sap flowing into it. It has no organic, dynamic connection that gives it life. We are the branches, and apart from an organic, dynamic connection with Jesus, abiding in him, and he abiding in us, there's no life in us. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So, the key word in this analogy is abide. Jesus uses it repeatedly. Uh, abide means to remain, to stay, to dwell. Okay? Moved here, not moving away. This is where I belong. But not in literal geographical space, in spiritual space. In the letters of Paul, one of his favorite expressions is in Christ, or in Christ Jesus. To the saints in Ephesus who are in Christ Jesus. I don't know if he exactly says it to Ephesians, but he says it enough that he should have. Um, he, he, he sees Christians as being located in Christ. And in some way, we're wrapped up in the person of Christ. Sheltered, nurtured, sustained. That Jesus Christ was the air that they breathed, the space that they inhabited, and it was constant. They were abiding in Christ. Abide in me, and my words abide in you, he says. Abide in my love, he says. It's about abiding. I try to think of a way to explain or to define what this means. To abide in Christ. I think the words themselves have a force, but how do you describe what that is? 
to abide in Jesus. Now we can reduce it to something very rational, um, something very religious, or we can go way mystical with it, which would be my preference. But the point is, I couldn't reduce it to a simple formula or to its ingredients. I have this, this sense of, of knowing it inside myself. You know, it's kind of like when you finally learn to balance on a bicycle. How do you describe what that is? If, if you're trying to tell your child now, okay, you've got to balance. How are you gonna tell them what balance is? They have to experience it. And so you run along beside them until they experience what it is to be in motion on the bicycle and balancing it and shifting their weight to turn. And so I'm pretty sure that to know what it is to abide in Christ, you have to experience it. And that may not sound fair to you. It's like, well, how do I do that? But let me just say that if you can say, well, abiding feels like, or abiding looks like, you can't say exactly what it is, but if, if you can use a metaphor or simile or analogy and finish the, the sentence, then that's where you want to be, always. That's where you want to be. Always abiding in Jesus. There's a moment in chapter 15 that feels like a graduation ceremony of sorts. In verse 15, Jesus says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Because from now on, um, whatever my father gives to me, I'm going to give straight to you. He's been, uh, he's been interpreting for God. He has been measuring what he's given them so far. He's been putting it in, in a form that children can understand, so to speak. Um, I won't say he's been dumbing it down, but he has been putting it through filters. But no filters anymore. And from now on, you're not my servants. You're my friends. I'm going to confide in you as friends. I don't have to tell the servant what I'm thinking. I just say, go do this. And my friends, I say, well, here's what I'm asking you to do and why. Do you see how, how this is changing? He's promoting the disciples from servants to friends. And this moment is enveloped by a commandment. In verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I love you. Verse 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. So in between these this repeated commandment to love he's saying and now you get this promotion if we had to identify a specific way to abide in Christ it would be love the greatest commandment love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself and it boggles my mind that so many Christians fail to see this whereas where does all the, the anger come from? Where does all the, the wrangling and, and fighting over doctrine come from? James says it comes from your own sinful desires that war inside of you. It doesn't come from God. He says this wisdom is not from above. 
It's earthly, it's sensual, it's devilish, he says. Okay, so chapter 15 pivots on verse 17 and then tips the other way. What am I saying? That Jesus tells his disciples, love is the key. Love is the command. Love is the way. But then he makes a sharp turn and says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. From love to hate. This is what we're all about in the vineyard. We're about the, out here. You're not greater than I am. If they've hated me and persecuted me, they're going to hate and persecute you. And, and that's what he takes them into next. He jumps from the love that holds them to him to the hate that separates them from the world. And these two forces were, will be shaping them as they go forward. Love and hate. Hate will be external, an external force up against them. But love will be both an internal and external force moving them and through them. The world will persecute them, but that won't stop the work. And that's because of the spirit of truth, as Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit. He'll be working with them. Um, and he gives a few specific details of how the Spirit will be doing that in the next chapter. But he's ultimately responsible for the success of the mission. This, the Holy Spirit seems like a silent partner. I don't know, have you ever thought about it? God has a name, Yahweh, that he reveals in the Hebrew Scriptures. Um, Jesus, the Son, has a name in the New Testament. And the Holy Spirit doesn't have a name. Um, and, and the Holy Spirit, I mean, God is described in anthropomorphic terms, very human-like terms. They don't do him justice, but that's the language of Scripture. And Jesus is a human, as well as God. The Holy Spirit. What's <laughs> the Holy Spirit? He's all around. He's, he's everywhere. He's, you know, he doesn't have a form or shape. It's just this this is a little bit more difficult to, uh, to get a hold of. It's like trying to grab hold of steam coming out of the kettle. But, uh, so, so the Holy Spirit is like a silent partner glorifying Jesus. But he's so much a silent partner that I don't think we rely on him as much as we could be relying on him. And there are a lot of people who will say, well, once you've brought a person to Christ, then what do you do for them? And it's okay to say, I leave them in the hands of the Holy Spirit. You know, if I've introduced them to God, then the Spirit is with them and in them. And I'm not saying my job is finished. I mean, or it may be someone else's job. Two weeks before Romuel died, which, by the way, I didn't intend this, but when I was up at the Hermitage a couple of weeks ago, one of the monks came up to me after the, uh, the vigil service in the morning, and he said, uh, it was good to see me, blah, blah, blah. And he said, you know, uh, yesterday was the anniversary of Romuald's death. And um, I had not been thinking about that. I wasn't the one who chose these dates to be there. So um, it was special. Two weeks before Romuald died, my last conversation with him, I said, Romuald, I don't see why God thinks it's okay to take you from me right now. 
that I've only had these two years with you. Our conversations have changed my life in God. I have so much more to learn. How can God think this is okay? And Ramiel smiled real big and said, Chuck, I'm not your teacher. The Holy Spirit is your teacher. And he'll provide for you. The Holy Spirit, okay, so I, I've got to move on. Let's just try to trust the Holy Spirit more. Let's give him some of the things that we're anxious about, because he really can handle them. What, what Jesus does in chapter 16 is he explains to his disciples the purpose of this whole conversation. Several times, Jesus begins with the words, I have said these things to you. That's how the, the chapter begins. I have said all these things to you. And then he gives them the reason for, for saying these things. And this is the outline of the chapter. First, verse 1, I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. They would suffer for their devotion to Jesus. And he's preparing them to accept that suffering and to endure it. So I've said these things to you so that you'll be ready for what's coming and not fall away. It won't, it won't hit you so hard that you say, I can't do this anymore. I can't walk with, with Jesus anymore. Second, verse 4, I have said these things to you that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So they wouldn't be taken by surprise or assume I failed my mission. Look what's happened. I began with a church of 3,000 and ended up with a church of two and a half. You know, you know, one married couple, and they're two and a half kids. And, um, <laughs> you know, I failed. And, and, uh, and Jesus said, I want you to understand the hardships they had so that you're not taken by surprise. Third, he said, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. I mean, they didn't need to be scared off before they got started with Jesus. But the time had come for them to, to hear it and to prepare for it. He had only told them what they needed at the time. Okay, so don't you think you can say, looking back, I'm glad God didn't tell me what I was going to have to go through way back then? Fourth, verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. This is one of the central ideas behind John's gospel, that... When Jesus was crucified, the disciples' education was still unfinished. There's so many things to say to you. You can't bear them now. I mean, think of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus after Jesus' resurrection. He pulled up next to them. They didn't know it was Jesus. They said, jump in. And they're driving together to Emmaus. And Jesus starts to unload on them everything the scriptures say about him. And their eyes are opened. And they begin to understand. And then Jesus opens the eyes of the other disciples. This is all in Luke chapter 24. And now they begin to understand the scriptures and, and see Jesus in them. Like they've never seen before. So at the end of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, their education is not complete. And what John is doing is he's giving more of what they had learned in those 50, 60 years from the time that Jesus was there. 
And he's saying, look, this, the Holy Spirit took over their education. This is what Jesus promised. The Holy Spirit became their guide. And, and what do you need a guide for? You need a guide for a journey where you're not familiar with where you're going. And you need uh, a guide for um, progress, making progress. A guide, a guide represents a process. Walk you through this. You know, all of our expectations that I'm going to repent immediately. I'm going to convert immediately. No, you're not. I mean, go ahead and try. You know, good luck. You know, more power to you. Um, but it's going to be a process. It's going to be ongoing. It's before it's. I'm going to forgive this person. Great. Mm -hmm. Try it. Um, when you fail, we'll tell you how it really works. It's a process. The resentment does not disappear. You've just resolved it at one layer. But this onion has many layers. And you'll get down to another one and find that resentment's still there at another level. Okay, so I'm wasting time. I need to hurry. Um, you cannot bear them now. In this way, John's gospel is more complete than the synoptics. Fifth, in verse 25, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. But he says, from now on, though, I'm no, no longer going to use figures of speech. I'm going to tell you plainly. So this also is like a graduation or a promotion. We're moving up here. I, I've had to make these childlike analogies for you using figures of speech, living water, born again, good shepherd, true vine. Um, draw through the gospel of John. He says, but no longer. I can speak to you plainly now. It's almost like Jesus is saying, this is a good moment for you. It's a good moment for me. I feel comfortable speaking more plain English or Hebrew, Aramaic, whatever he was speaking. It relates to their progress from servants to friends. It's the same kind of promotion. They've advanced from figures of speech to plain language. Jesus had asked Nicodemus in John chapter 3, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Jesus says, all my speech has been down here. It all relates to what's up here, but it's all been down here. What if I start talking up here talk? If I'm losing you when I'm, when I'm talking about being born again and the flesh and the spirit, flesh gives birth to flesh, the wind blows, and you're not getting it, how about how if I really discuss in plain language heavenly things? You'll be completely lost. So there's this, this growth, this development. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, the writer of Hebrews talks about it in Hebrews chapters uh, well, chapter 5 specifically. And they talk about the difference between ingesting milk and chewing on meat. The milk is for the infants and the meat is for the mature. There's, there is this maturation. The sixth time, chapter 16, where he says, I have said these things, it's in verse 33, at the end of the chapter, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Well, if we're abiding in him, and in him we're going to have peace. In spite of persecution, then we're okay. But, but I can hear the disciples saying, peace? You've told us all these things so we'd have peace? In other words, you're going away. We're going to lose sight of you. You said we won't see you. 
the world will hate us, we'll scatter, we'll be persecuted, people, godly people will think they're doing God a service if they kill us. Where's the peace in any of that? Of course, Jesus didn't say that. They would not find peace in the world. They would not find peace in their circumstances, in any of these things he's described. He said, in the world you will have tribulation, but the source of the peace would be Jesus himself. Okay, so um, that's it for chapters 15 and 16. Only there is one more instance of Jesus saying, I have said these things to you, and that's in chapter 15. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. What is the, the joy of Jesus? His joy. He says, my joy will be in you. Well, whatever that is, if his joy is in me, my joy is going to be full. Fullest possible joy. I haven't grown into this yet. Others have. God bless them. I've tasted it. I've tasted a fullness of joy in Jesus. I, I don't live there yet. You know, this last week... Uh, I had to finish up some work uh, on our drive. There were big cracks in it. And, and uh, this last winter, uh, the wall bordering my neighborhood with the next neighborhood fell down in part. The, you know, one of the slumpstone walls <laughs> had not been reinforced at all. So it went down because the earth has been shifting. So we've got these big cracks. They've got to be filled because we don't want more water getting in there and more earth movement. So my son Michael has helped me with this project from demolition to construction to preparing these tracks for the stuff we poured in there, uh, mostly toothpaste. Um, <laughs> hope it works. Um, <laughs> uh, the cracks are cleaner and whiter. <laughs> I have really enjoyed Michael's companionship as we've worked on this together. And I hear Jesus saying, you're working in your Father's vineyard. And he is glorified when you bear much fruit. And you and the Father are working together. And, and I find a sense of pleasure in thinking about God and I doing our work together. And you might say, um, here, son, you're handling that that knife all wrong. If you're going to cut off the dead branches, you need to be careful and you need to do it this way. And that's fine because I'm apprenticing with my father as he's taking the time to train and teach. But in the meantime, there's this companionship in working together. We can expect Harleys to drive through our lives. <laughs> That's a metaphor, I'm sure. 
We can't expect hardships, but we can also expect compensation for those hardships, which is infinitely greater than the hardship. Paul says as much. The scripture says as much. And that's because of Jesus' last words to his disciples. He says to them, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Would you stand with me? May the blessing of God's grace and healing be upon our friend and brother Bill Livingston. And may the grace and goodness of God be upon our friend and sister Cindy and her husband Robin in this move. May the grace of God be upon all of us to get to the place where he wants to us to be this week. The Lord bless us, take away all evil, and lead us into eternal life in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.